your time of prayer. Always a blessing to pray together. Next Wednesday night, we'll be beginning the book of Zephaniah. But this week, we're picking up where we left off last week on the subject of giving. Last week was a foundational sermon for giving and uh, for what the Bible has to say about it. And tonight, we're going to look at principles for Christian giving, principles for a biblical, a biblical theology of giving, what I've called it. I said as part of the foundation message last week that the law of giving still applies today. We are as obligated to give as anybody in history and probably obligated to give more. We have more knowledge. We have more grace than anybody in history, more means than anybody in history. How the law plays out is different than it was under the Mosaic law. Giving supports the work of the church and those who minister the gospel Tonight I want to build on this foundation with principles for giving that I believe will help us and are thoroughly biblical. Turn your Bible to Genesis chapter 4. We'll start there, very early in the Bible. Genesis chapter 4. The first principle of Christian giving I want to give you tonight is that giving must be by faith. I think that's foundational to everything we do. It should be by faith. That's why I put it number one. The number one principle for giving is it has to be by faith. Genesis chapter 4, verse number 1. The Bible says, And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived, and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And again, or she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of, the, of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. This is the first recorded offering given to God in the Bible. Cain brought of his garden. He was a tiller of the ground. He was a <coughs> gardener, so to speak. <coughs> Abel was a shepherd, brought of his flock. I don't want to get caught up too much in tradition tonight. There's a lot of traditions about this story uh, that have kind of been read into it. We don't want to read into the Bible traditions. We want to draw from the Bible what it says. Some say, most say, that God rejected Cain's offering because it was vegetables and not a blood sacrifice, okay? That's tradition. The Bible never tells us what kind of offering they were bringing to the Lord. We're not told this was a sin offering. We're not told that there was a requirement for a blood offering to be offered here. We're never told. In fact, under the law of Moses even, there were offerings of vegetables given. You brought of your first of your crops, you brought of your fruit, you brought of the, the wheat and the grain that you harvested. Without the information, we shouldn't say anything, anything the Bible does not say. Go to Hebrews chapter 11, because that chapter comments on this story. Hebrews chapter 11 
So if God didn't reject Cain because of the type of offering he brought, why did he reject Cain's offering? The answer is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. The Bible says there, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. So what principle can we draw away from this first offering? It must be by faith. Why did God accept Abel's offering and not Cain's? Because Abel offered it by faith. That's the only deciding factor the Bible gives us. Faith. It doesn't say he rejected the substance of the offering, but the heart behind the offering. Which tells us this church, we can give and give and give from a wrong heart and never please God. You could sit here Sunday morning and write a million-dollar check to the church. Please do. If you do it by faith. If you do it by faith. But you know what? A million-dollar check in the offering does not please God if offered apart from faith. <coughs> if offered apart, <coughs> excuse me, from love, apart from love for God. God's not, he doesn't care how much we give if we're not giving by faith. The person who writes the million-dollar check and the person who gives in that same offering $25. If that $25 is given in faith, it's a greater offering to God than the million dollars. Faith must be our motivation. We don't give out of fear that God's going to hurt us. We don't give out of fear that God's going to punish us. We don't give in the hopes that God's going to give us back something more. We give by faith. We give because we trust God. We give because we love God. Or we're giving for the wrong reason. And God does not accept our offering. All offerings to God must come by faith. It must come from a heart that loves and honors the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, faith also takes risks sometimes. Don't give by calculating. Do I have enough to give and still pay my bills? Just give. Give because you love the Lord. Let him take care of your bills. It has to have an element of faith to it, or it's not real giving. In other words, don't give Jesus your leftovers. Don't, me don't, don't, don't measure out your budget and say, okay, here's what I got left. Now let me give a little something to Jesus off that what I have. But don't do that. That's not faith at all. Second principle. Go back to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis 14. Our second principle of Christian giving is that it must be worship. Genesis 14. Verse number 18. The Bible says that Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be, blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed, by the, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. So this is after the great battle, the great victory that Abram had won. 
He demonstrates thanksgiving to God in worship by giving a tenth of the spoils to the priest Melchizedek. You understand, there's worship going on here, right? Melchizedek didn't bring him bread and wine because he was thirsty and hungry. If I'm thirsty after a long battle, I don't want wine, I want water. Do you see the foreshadowing here of the communion meal, the bread and the wine? Some people say that Melchizedek preached the gospel to Abraham through the bread and the wine. That's what Jesus said when he said, he said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it and was glad. It's probably not a bad interpretation of that. And what does Abram do? He worships God by giving of the spoils of the war, realizing that God had given him the victory there. It was an act of worship. In too many cases, we separate giving from the rest of worship. I hate that. You ever been to a church where the offering is being taken? You know how most churches do offering? If they take the offering by offering plate, they do it in the middle of the service, right? You ever notice you go to one of these churches and the offering is going on? What's going on around the church? Everybody's, everybody's just talking, engaged in conversation. We don't treat giving as worship anymore. Why is that? We wouldn't accept that kind of talking during the preaching or praying or singing. It's completely, offering is completely related to what we're doing in the worship service. We worship God in our giving. I had a pastor one time when I was a young teenager. Only pastor I ever had that used this terminology, but he said, it's time to worship in giving. I love that. Worship in giving. It's it's an act of worship to God. Giving is not... Churches nowadays are offering you, uh, what is it? Automatic withdrawal on your offerings. Just You don't even have to think about it. They just take it right out of your bank account. That's not worship. Worship is mindful. Worship is, is knowing God. It's, it's, it's a purposeful thing. We don't worship by accident. We worship on purpose. If you're giving to get God's blessings, it's not worship. It's bribery. If you're giving because you think God's going to punish you if you don't, it's not worship. It's fear-mongering. If you're giving because it's tradition or you just feel it's the right thing to do, that's not worship. We give out of worship to God. Honoring God for who He is and what He has done for us. Worship is an act of giving Sorry, giving is an act of worship. We have to get that back in the church today. Giving, I know everyone's afraid of it and pastors are afraid to talk about it, but it's as valid to worship as preaching and singing and praying. We need to treat it that way. And when you give your offering, worship God in your giving. Offer it back to God. Pray over it. God, I'm giving this back to you of that which you've given to me. Make it a thoughtful thing that I'm worshiping on purpose. I'm giving this on purpose because of who God is and what he's done. That's what Abraham did. That's what Abraham did. Go to Genesis 28. Genesis 28. We'll see it again as worship.
Genesis 28, verse 20. And Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, <coughs> and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give a tenth unto thee. Jacob met God at Bethel. God revealed himself. He wrestled with God. He wrestled with the Almighty. In Jacob's heart here, realizing who the one true God is, he begins to worship and praise and extol God. And as part of his worship, he promises to give a tenth of all that God gives him. This is flowing from a heart of worship in Jacob. This is not flippant. This is thought out. He's dedicating a portion to God. That's worship. And we dedicate a portion to God. Third principle. Christian giving must be intentional. Intentional. Again, this is voluntary, not compulsory. You know, there's actually churches and denominations. I can't remember the names now. I've heard them before. There's actually denominations and churches that will audit your income tax to make sure you're giving 10% of your income to the church. There's churches that have done that and do that. They check your giving statements against your earnings to make sure that you're giving. It's not what we do here. That wouldn't be worship. But worship has to be intentional. We do it on purpose. Do you know you can come to church on Sunday and not worship God? You can see the whole service. You can sing the songs and not worship God. You can hear the message and not worship God. Because your mind is so detached from what's being said. And you're singing the songs because you know the tune or you don't want to be the one guy that's not singing, but your heart's not there. You're not really praising God. You're not really singing as to God. You can give and not be worship. In this text here, God reveals himself to Jacob and Jacob purposes in his heart. Intentionally. God, you'll be my God and all that you give me, I'll give a tenth back to you. I'm going to give a portion back of all that you give me because you are God. You catch that the text? Then God will be my God and of all that thou givest me, I'll give a tenth. The tenth, the promise of giving, is related to him being God. That's worship. That's intentional worship. Giving should be purposeful and intentional. Again, as worship. Worship doesn't happen by accident. Don't just give thoughtlessly. However much you determine to give, give on purpose. It's okay to give randomly. You say, well, I've already given what I purpose the Lord to give, and I feel led to give some, then give more. A guest preacher comes through, you feel led to give the guest, give the guest preacher. That's okay. But have a purpose. Have an intentionality with your giving. It's like other things in life. Things left to chance typically never come to pass, do they? If you leave your Bible reading to chance, you'll never read your Bible. You need to set a time to read your Bible. 
If you just leave praying to chance, you'll never pray. You need to set a time to pray. If you leave your giving to chance, you'll never give. Set an intentional amount to give by faith in worship to God. And be faithful to that. Be faithful to that. Fourth principle tonight. I'm moving through some of these kind of fast because the other ones will take more time. Fourth principle tonight is to give faithfully. We take this one not from a specific text in Scripture, but from its inclusion in the law of Moses. In the law, they're required to give faithfully. Every, whatever it was, holy day, the, the gatherings, they'd bring offerings to the temple. Feast days, that's what they're going to feast days. At the uh, harvesting of the crops, they were to give faithfully, they, they were commanded to give faithfully of their increase on a regular basis. I mentioned this last week, but think of Israel as children. Better be taught right from wrong. Children need to be taught right from wrong. An adult doesn't have to be. Remember when you were in school and you had to raise your hand to go to the bathroom? You ever notice in a work meeting you don't have to raise your hand to go to the bathroom? You're not a kid. You're a grown-up. If you're in the middle of a meeting at work, go to the bathroom. Right? Training is for the little kid. Israel was like a child. And that's what the laws were for. The laws were to teach them. That's why we cut the corners of our beards. We don't we mix fabrics today. <coughs> it was teaching them spiritual separation in ways that we don't have to be taught today. We know the truth. The shadows are gone. The substance has come. We know what spiritual separation is. We've moved on to maturity in the church. This means we're no longer under a schoolmaster. But having learned, we apply the principles of the law, though not the letter of it. The law had so taught the disciples to give that it was their instinct in the book of Acts. You notice that there's no command to give in the book of Acts? They just, everyone sold what they had and brought it and put it at the disciples' feet. They just gave. You know why? Because they had been taught through the law to give, and now they gave without being told to give. They gave faithfully. They immediately cared for widows and the poor. What was a command under the law was a reflex under grace. Give faithfully because we've been taught by the law to give faithfully. We should give faithfully without being told to do so. It should be an automatic reflex of ours to give to the Lord. Fifth principle. Turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Acts 4 will be in verse 33. Bible says, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, 
and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the prices of the things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. I forgot to tell you guys the next principle. The next principle is to give publicly. Publicly. They did this giving publicly. It's kind of a sore spot in modern church. I don't know why. The apostles were obviously together in one place when this happened. We have this trend today that giving should be quiet and private. Nobody needs to know that I give. Nobody needs to know anything. I don't see that in Scripture. When they gave the temple, it was public. When they gave in the church, it was public. We're commanded by Jesus in Matthew 6, 1-4, through 4, not to make a public show or brag about our giving. Right? Don't sound a trumpet before you. Don't, don't try to be seen like the Pharisees are. But that doesn't mean never be seen. He's saying don't do it to be seen. Do you see what he's saying there? In fact, we'll just turn there briefly. Let me go over that real quick. Matthew chapter 6. I'll show you an ironic thing in this passage here that I saw. Matthew 6. Matthew 6, verse 1. Jesus said, Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. So, did he say, Don't do your alms before men? Period? Well, no, he said to be seen of them. Context matters. Otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. And in the streets, they may, be, they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy, thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father, which seeth in secret, may himself shall reward thee openly. There's a lot of irony in this passage. Because in the same passage, we're commanded to pray, we're commanded to fast. For those complaining that all giving is commanded to be private, do you fast? If you don't fast, how can you... By the way, that that is a command. We are supposed to fast. He didn't say if you fast. He says when you fast. When you pray, when you give. What they do is they pick an argument from the text rather than surrender themselves to the text. The giving in secret here is simply the context of announcing your giving to boast in it. It's okay to write the million dollar check. It's not okay to have a t-shirt that says, I just wrote a million dollar check to the church. I heard a church one time, a good church. They had this uh, lady that came to Sunday school. 
She never stayed for church. She just came to this, the early Sunday school hour. She looked homeless. She smelled kind of homeless. Didn't talk to many people. Sat in the back. Took home all the extra donuts with her. They didn't care. They figured she needed the donuts. She probably was hungry. She came to the church for a year. And one day the pastor gets a call. The lawyer and says, Mrs. So-and-so passed away. He's like, I don't know who she was. She must have been a member of your church or something. He goes, no. Then he realized this is the lady from the Sunday school. She hadn't been there in a couple weeks. The lawyer said she was the kind of person who lived like a homeless person, but had a lot of money. And she left it to the church, a million dollars. She left to the church. Never joined. Never really talked to many people. It was all very quiet. Didn't brag. That's how your giving should be. But it should be public, I believe. This trend that no one needs to see me give is Americanized nonsense. In the New Testament, we see that giving is public. Some churches, you know, they push online giving. Some churches, they push the, the box out in the foyer, you know. We only take offerings here on Sunday mornings. We do provide the box in the back, mostly for those who come other services where you don't take an offering. We provide online giving, but the intention behind that is to provide people who watch our services but live out of our area who, wanna, who are blessed and want to bless the church so they can do the same thing. But for our church members, Sunday morning is primarily intended for you to give in the offering plate. So people are going to know if I give. It's none of their business. That's a terrible attitude to have. Imagine if Barnabas had that attitude. I'll sell my lands and houses and give it to the church, but I'm not going to do it if anybody knows. It's in the Bible. We all know he gave it. He didn't brag about it. God recorded that. In the temple, giving was done publicly. That's why Jesus sat and watched them give in the temple. This idea that giving has to be private and quiet and secret, that's nonsense. We give publicly because that's what they do in the Bible. Give publicly. I don't foresee our offering plates disappearing around here anytime soon. And I'm very careful. I move the offering to the end of our service. But you'll notice we do it before the doxology. That's on purpose, but that's not an accident. Our opening prayer and call to worship. Well, actually, the call to worship begins our worship time. We do announcements before that on purpose. Announcements don't need to be in the time of worship. Worship is about God. We focus on God during that time. So we do our announcements before the call to worship. We do the doxology after the offering. You know why? Because the offering is as much worship as the preaching and the singing. And I want to make sure we're including it in our time of worship to God. By the way, when they're passing the offering plate at the end of Sunday morning, that's not the time to talk to people. It's not the time to pack your stuff up and get ready to go home. That's time to worship. Say a prayer as they're passing by as you give your offering. Sing a song, whatever's playing on the piano. Sing along to it. Worship the Lord during that time. That's what it's intended for. 
I don't plan to stop passing the plate because I can see there's a biblical purpose to it. Number six. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Number six. Give preparedly. Preparedly. First Corinthians 16, verse 2. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him. There be no gatherings when I come. Paul was gathering offerings for the saints in Jerusalem. He tells the churches to come with their offering already prepared. Listen, we shouldn't be hurriedly writing checks as the offering is about to pass. We shouldn't be thumbing around our wallets or our purses when the offering is about to pass. Maybe the Lord puts something in your heart last minute. That's fine. But that's the exception, not the rule. Come prepared. You don't come prepared. You don't come unprepared for the rest of worship, do you? We prepare ourselves for worship. We prepare our hearts. Hopefully you prepare your hearts to sing, to hear the word of God. Come prepared for the offering. You can put an envelope when you first get here before you fellowship. Take envelopes home and prepare the night before. But come ready to give. That's what Paul's saying here. Come ready to give. Go to Acts chapter 5. Principle number, number 7. It's an important one. Give honestly. We all know what happened in Acts chapter 5 when they failed to give honestly. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it. And brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost, to keep back part of the price of the land? While as it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all, on, on all of them and that heard these things. And the young men arose, wound him up, carried him out, and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much? And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them that have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in, and found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. Now listen to me, I'm not saying God's going to kill you if you lie about your giving. This was an extraordinary circumstance in the early church for the purpose of 
teaching people that God is serious about honesty. That being said, the sin of the couple was not holding back money. It was lying about it. It was lying about it. They had evidently committed to the Lord a certain price and then only gave part of that price. If you covenant with the Lord to give, as I said earlier, purpose how, how, you're, how much you're going to give, don't lie to God. Don't say, Lord, I'll give you this much and then not fulfill what you've covenanted for him to do. Has Christ ever broken covenant for you? Has he ever gone back on his word? Then don't do that to God. Listen, when we come before God's presence, we make commitments to God. We should make those very thoughtfully, very carefully, and with a lot of fear. That we are going to keep what we commit to the Lord. Be honest with God about what you're going to give. Be honest with God. Number eight. Give sacrificially. Give sacrificially. Thanks to John MacArthur, this has actually become a controversial topic, but it shouldn't be. Go to Luke chapter 21. Let's show this principle from Scripture, but first, let's deal with the controversy if we can. Luke 21. Verse number one. The Bible says, and He looked up and saw the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury. He saw also a certain poor widow casting in their two mites. And He said, Of a truth, I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast in more than they all. For all these have of their abundance cast in under the offerings of God. But she of her penury hath cast in all the living that she had. MacArthur teaches and has been teaching of late that Jesus is actually rebuking the woman. I, I get the heart behind what he's been saying. A lot of churches abuse sacrifice. I understand that. Churches teach, as I said last week, that you need to mortgage your house to support them. That's not, that's not biblical. But sacrificial giving is biblical. So his mind is that Jesus is actually saying that this woman is trying to buy her way into the kingdom of God by her offering. He bases his teaching on two false assumptions. Number one, that Jesus was unhappy with her offering, which the text does not say, and that she was trying to buy her way to the kingdom, which, again, the text does not say. Another issue I have with MacArthur's interpretation is that he even admits it's brand new. By the way, I have some views that I'm in the minority on. But minority means there's still other people who have taught this. Or I have some views that modern scholars may not agree with, but I have the old dead guys to back me up. MacArthur admits this is brand new to him, this interpretation of the text. Beware of any brand new interpretation of the scriptures. Beware of anything brand new. Listen to his own words. I'm quoting him now. Now, if you are beginning to say to yourself, here goes another message on sacrificial giving, you might be right to expect that because that is the universal application of this text. Universal, he says. It is always used to tell us we ought to give the way this widow gave. Universally, there's that word again. Commentators tell us 
that our Lord is giving us a little glimpse of true worship in the middle of the false worship that dominates the temple. They tell us that it's a beautiful little story in the midst of ugliness, a little light in the midst of darkness, an illustration of giving till it hurts, contrasted with the selfishness of the spiritual leaders. This is the traditional, this is the universal explanation of the passage. Listen, when no one has taught something before, why should I believe you are the smartest person who, who has ever lived since the Bible was completed? Especially when, because of his dispensational background, he gets so much of the Bible interpretation wrong in the first place. Be very careful of anybody who brings you new interpretation. When someone tells me, no one has ever thought this before, then I'm, my first thought is, you're wrong then. 2,000 years and the Spirit never revealed that, that to anybody else but you? Another mistake he makes is that he says that from verse 5 and onward, the subject is the judgment of the temple. I agree that it is. But we don't read verse 5 and onward back into verses 1 through 4. The context has changed. If we look at the preceding chapter, 20, verses 46 through 47, go ahead and turn there. That lines up with this context. Look at verse, chapter 20, verse 46 and 47. Keeping in mind that when the Bible was written, there was no chapter and verse divisions. It was one long, continuous writing. Jesus says, beware of the scribes which desire to walk in long robes and love greetings in the markets and the highest seats in the synagogue and the chief rooms at feasts which devour widows' houses and for a show make long prayers. The same shall receive greater damnation. So Jesus is condemning the false and self-serving worship of the Pharisees and scribes. Then comes this poor widow a few verses later and gives all that she has to the Lord. Jesus sees this. He doesn't condemn her. So we have a right to assume that she's giving from the heart. And Jesus says, you know what I just said about the, these other guys that are devouring widows' houses and doing all this for show? She's given more than they have. Because she gave, she gave to God all that she had. And they just take a little bit off the riches they have, because their heart is far from God. That's the context. What MacArthur is doing is saying that, we, that because this passage is abused, and it is, we need to redefine it. That's not how Scripture works. There's a lot of Scriptures that are abused by a lot of false teachers. That's why men like Andy Stanley won't get rid of the Old Testament. The Bible has been used to support slavery mistreatment of women, and so on. Just get rid of it then, I guess, right? No, you don't do that. You interpret it rightly in context, in light of the teaching of church history. In other words, if nobody in the last 2,000 years saw it this way, you're probably wrong. That's how groups like the Seventh-day Adventists and the JWs and the Mormons got started. New interpretations. No one's ever thought this before. You're wrong then. 
I'm not accusing MacArthur of starting a cult, but I'm saying that's how cults start. Go to 2 Samuel 24. It's telling us the same thing that we're seeing with the widow here. Sacrificial giving. 2 Samuel 24. Second Samuel 24, verse number 20. Bible says, And Arona looked and saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arona went out and bowed himself before the king on his face upon the ground. And Arona said, Wherefore is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor of thee, to build an altar unto the Lord, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Arona said unto David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seemeth good unto him. Behold, here be oxen for burnt offerings, or burnt sacrifice, and threshing instruments, and other instruments of the oxen for wood. All these things did Arona as a king, as a king give unto the king. And Arona said unto the king, The Lord thy God accept thee. And the king said to Arona, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee. At a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Of course, that became the temple mount later on. David has to make a sacrifice to God to stay the plague on the people of Israel. He goes to Arona the Jebusite and says, I need to buy your threshing floor make an offering to the Lord for the punishment of the people of Israel. And what does this godly man say? Just take it. Just take it and take the ox and take the tools. You can break them up, make, make wood. <coughs> take it. And David, what did he say? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. I can't sacrifice to God if it costs me nothing. That's sacrificial giving. That's what the widow's doing in Luke 21. Too often we give out of our abundance and have plenty left over. It should cost us something when we sacrifice to God. It should take faith to give. If our giving is just skimming off the top, we're doing it wrong. It's not just about money either. It's about giving in a variety of ways. Our giving should cost us something. It should hurt a little bit. It should be uncomfortable sometimes. Marshall Siegel says this, We give to other kinds of needs around us, especially of believers, opening our homes and hospitality, covering bills in a crisis, providing meals after a surgery, surprising someone with a thoughtful gift. We support the spread of the gospel, first through our own churches, then, but then far beyond through world missions, do any dollars produce more treasure in heaven than those that help welcome the unreached into the kingdom? We give and we also do good, spending time with the lonely, carrying boxes during a move, babysitting for weary parents, helping someone with house projects, baking for a neighbor. So laying up treasure in heaven sometimes means lending our time and hands instead of our money. The calling here is not just a lifestyle of generosity, but of ambitious generosity. 
not make sure you cover your bases and then see if you have some left over to give away, but lay up treasure in heaven. Chase this treasure. Search for creative ways to obtain more of this treasure. Do whatever you can to have this treasure. No leftover generosity, but radical generosity. The kind that only makes sense if Jesus really died, really rose, and will really reward those who give and sacrifice in these ways. Don't simply include heaven in your budget, but aim your budget, your whole budget, at heaven. Wonderful, wonderful thoughts. Let me give you another example. Second Corinthians chapter 8, go there. Sacrificial giving. Second Corinthians chapter 8. We've talked about this one before, but I think it bears repeating. Second Corinthians 8 verse 1. The Bible says, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and, I, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty. By the way, that word praying means begging. <laughs> Let us give. They're begging for a chance to give. Praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. You know, Paul doesn't correct them. He praises them. They're in deep poverty. It's like the widow in Luke 21. Deep poverty. They could use that money. And if Paul was like MacArthur, he'd say, that's a sin. You shouldn't be giving that of your poverty. You, should, you need that money. You give when you can afford to give. Paul says, Praise the Lord. They, they gave out of their poverty, trusting God would meet their needs. To help others. Like the widow of Zarephath, remember her? She took the last of her meal to feed Elijah. Did her and her son ever starve because she did that? No. Did Elijah say, now I'll go find somewhere else to get food because, you know, that's your last, that's your last of your bread. I'm not going to take that away from that. You shouldn't give sacrificial. No, no. He, he took the food. She gave it willingly as an offering to the prophet of God. And what happened? God met her needs. God met her needs. We give sacrificially because we believe that God will meet our needs. That's why we give. But I'm not saying mortgage your home to give. But I'm saying give when you don't know if you'll have enough to cover your bills. Trusting God will meet your needs. Give when you feel like you have nothing left to give. Give to the Lord. The widow didn't mind. The widow of Zarephath didn't mind. David said, if, I, if it doesn't cost me something, I'm not going to do it. Go to chapter 9, verse 8. Chapter 9, just one, one chapter over, verse 8. Paul says here, And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. As it is written, 
He had dispersed abroad, he had given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food, and multiply your seed sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness. God is promising here, if we give faithfully, he'll supply bread for our food. And he says, you have all sufficiency in all things. In other words, nobody ever gave to the Lord and starved to death because of it or became homeless because of it. When we're not willing to give sacrificially, it's more a statement about us than it is about God. We hold back for ourselves because we're saying, I don't think God will meet my need. Lastly, I know I'm running a bit late here, principle number nine is that giving brings a blessing. Go to Malachi chapter 3 real quick. Malachi chapter 3. This gets you abused quite a bit. I understand that. But we mentioned this last week. Malachi 3.6 For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Even from the days of your fathers, ye are gone away from mine ordinances, and have not kept them. Return unto me, I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye said, Wherein shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Where have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation, bringing all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. I mentioned this last week in passing. The situation here is that they had not brought the grain offering, the grain tithe, into the storehouse of the temple. God judged them with a lack of rain, so their crops would die, and insects that were eating their crops. They were robbing God by not bringing what the law required. Can we rob God today? We can. We can. If we hoard everything for ourselves, we don't obey the command to give, to share, to help others. God tells them to, to give what they required, and God will open the windows of heaven. Now, I'm not saying that you give given a Offering in the offering plate Sunday, and God's going to open the windows of heaven and pour a blessing upon you. Context matters here. The context is the grain offering. He says, you bring the grain offering into the storehouse. I will pour rain on your crops. I will return to blessing you. I will rebuke the devourer. Who's the devourer? It's not the IRS agent. That's a bad interpretation. It's the locusts that are eating, the, the things that God has sent to punish them for not giving as they were supposed to give. Faithfulness in giving does bring blessing from the Lord. I'm not saying that God will make you rich. But I'm saying God will meet your needs. God will provide all that you need if you give faithfully. Let me put the roof on this house with a few rules for Christian giving. 
We lay the foundation. We use the principles to kind of build the walls. Let's put a roof on it. Don't turn. We don't have a lot of time, but we... You know most of these verses. I'm going to read them to you. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. But this I say, He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. The more you sow in a field, the greater the harvest. The more we sow of money, time, talent, and so on, we reap in blessing from the Lord and reward in heaven. It's not just about money. It's about time invested as well. The very next verse says, Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. The last of the rules comes from here. First, give as you purpose in your heart. It may be 10% or 20% or 30%. It may be you have weak faith it's only 5%. Can I be honest with you? I would hesitate to go below 10% as a standard for anyone who's been saved for more than a year. I, we're, not, we're not held to the Old Testament standard, but we probably shouldn't go below it. We should probably, most Christians should be giving 10% or more of their income. Your faith should be growing, and as your faith grows, so, so should your giving. If all you can give is a small amount, but you, you can give an abundance of time, give that. Figure out how much time you want to give. Follow through. My mom never, I mean, she never had much money. She wasn't really able to work. My dad didn't keep up with child support. and Much, much of what she got, she got from my grandmother who gave it to her to pay bills. And even then, my mom was faithful to give. Sometimes it wasn't 10%. Sometimes it was a $10 bill. It's all she had left. It's all she could give. She gave. But you know what she did? She gave her time very generously. Very generously. Love to serve others. That's okay. Giving. You hear a sermon, you say, oh, the pastor just wants my money. Listen, God wants you and me. Our money our time, all of it. If you can't give money, give time. Serve others. Help others. Second, there's no necessity. There's no God-inspired minimum amount. Third, God loves a cheerful giver. Make sure your heart's right before you give. We were taught in Bible Institute, well, God loves a cheerful giver, but he'll take a grouchy one too. No, he won't. Don't do that. He wants a cheerful giver. Make sure your heart's right with God before you give. Don't give from a bitter heart. God's not pleased with that. These Macedonians first gave themselves to the Lord, then naturally all they had was at his disposal. And they gave generously, sacrificially, and excitedly. They insisted that Paul take the gift. So the most important rule of Christian giving is this. Give yourself to God first. If God has your heart, he has everything. He, your wallet won't be a, a struggle. Your time won't be a struggle. Make sure you surrender yourself to God first. Don't try to give and then bring your heart into surrender. Bring your heart into surrender. I, I promise you, if you're saved, the Spirit will move you to give. 
time, money, talent, experience, whatever it is. Make sure that Christ has you, because you are what he wants. Not your wallet, you, me. He wants us. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this time in the Word, for this quick series, Lord. I pray that everything I said has been pleasing to you, biblical, I believe it has been, Lord. I pray that we would give ourselves to you first. You have all the money. You have, you own the cattle on a thousand. You need nothing from us. But you want our heart. You call us to surrender it to you, to worship you alone. May we give ourselves first to you. And then naturally, whatever is ours is yours. Our cars, our homes, our jobs, our bank accounts, our time, our clothes, our food, our drink, everything belongs to you. Oh, Lord, I pray you teach us to give ourselves first. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.